Would you turn in the Bible, please, to our reading for this morning? It's John chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through to 21 from John chapter 3, which, as you already know, includes arguably the most famous verse in the Bible, but it contains much more as well, and we shall read it to our benefit, we pray, under God's guidance. John chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, is John 3.16? The most famous verse in the Bible? I wonder. 
You might have other ideas. But at this time of the year, as we approach, as Tony's reminded us, Christmas, if we didn't already know, we will have all sorts of visions and ideas of what Jesus was like, and we have different ideas about him. Think of him as the baby from God. Perhaps we remember the words and the name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It's a fabulous story that God should be here. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us? What was the purpose of that coming, that first coming? Because there is a second coming. And tonight, God willing, we shall look at that second coming and see what will happen when Jesus comes again. But this morning we're looking at this first coming. This coming that Jesus explains to Nicodemus in this wonderful verse, John chapter 3 and verse 16. We're going to look at it in three headings. We're going to consider the context in which this verse comes. The context. Then we're going to look at the content. What do those words actually mean? And we're going to weigh them and have a look at them. Then we're going to look at the consequence. So John 3.16, this uh, study this morning, our, our consideration this morning, we want God to speak to us from his own word through this verse. It's context. It's content. And it's consequence. Let's look at the first of those and unwrap that a bit. The context. This verse is just one in a conversation. A conversation that Jesus is having with this man Nicodemus. Now this Nicodemus, he was an important man. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. You didn't get to be that unless you were an important man in society. He had status. But you didn't get there unless you also had brains. This man was a thinking man. Thinking, serious, with status. He couldn't be there unless he was a very religious man. He was a devout man. He took his religion, he took his Jewish faith seriously. That's who he was. But he was possibly a fearful man as well. He comes, doesn't he? At night. Because on the Jewish council, of which he was a part, Jesus was not well regarded. Jesus was thought to be a stirrer and a troublemaker. One who was making claims which could not be backed up. But Nicodemus has looked at the miraculous signs that Jesus has been doing and thinks, this man must have come from God. But he's still fearful. Fearful of what those other people might say about him if they knew he'd been with Jesus. Fearful of the friendships he might lose, the status he might have to give up. Fearful of what it might mean for his faith. Might that have to be changed dramatically if Jesus was who he was claiming to be? But Nicodemus is a man we can feel sympathetic with, surely. Here he was trying to do the right thing trying to use the wisdom that God had given him to sort out the challenges that he faces in his life. Is that you today? Are you trying to do the right thing? That's 
good. But like Nicodemus, you need to come to Jesus and talk to him if you want to find out what this world is really about, where it's leading, and what you must do to be right with God. We don't really know what Nicodemus wanted to ask Jesus because he never gets to ask a question, does he? Have you noticed that? Jesus, it says, replies, or Jesus declares, but Nicodemus hasn't asked a question. He's come to Jesus, he's made statements in, chapter, in verse 2. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. He's talking, but he's not asking. He's stating. And Jesus comes straight in. He interrupts him. Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. I know what you're really thinking. What you need to hear is what I'm going to tell you. There's a message for us. God knows what we need from him. He knows what's in our hearts. So we might fill up with all sorts of good words like Nicodemus does, but Jesus comes and speaks to him about what he needs. It's not a question that Nicodemus has asked, but Jesus focuses in on the God, the Holy Spirit, on the need for salvation, you know, that people are going to perish unless they're given eternal life and he must be lifted up. He points the way for Nicodemus to reach the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus doesn't necessarily understand it and he has to ask some questions then. But it's the Lord who is leading him. And he reaches a clinching argument, doesn't the Lord, in verses 16 through to 21, where our verse comes. After that, after what Jesus has said in verses 16, 21, verses 16 through to 21, there's no need for Nicodemus to say any more. Our report and what we understand of this interview ends there. Jesus has pointed out the way to the kingdom of God. There's nothing more that Nicodemus needs to know. The whole of the gospel promise for Nicodemus and for us this morning is there in what Jesus has said in these verses and even in just this one verse. So that's the context we're in. Part of a conversation between somebody who's seeking knowledge and needs to speak to Jesus and Jesus graciously meeting his need not expressed in the first place but known to Jesus and if you come and you address Jesus in prayer and speak to him he knows what your needs are he knows what is most important for you and if you listen to him he will tell you Nicodemus listened and he heard verse 16. So let's look at the content of that verse. Verse 16 of John chapter 3. Let's take the words, you know, individually. So let's look at some of the key words in this verse. We don't count words, we weigh them, don't we? We don't count arguments, we weigh them. Each of these words needs to be weighed. God, for God so loved the world, he said. 
God. God is, the Greek word is theos. It's the one that the Greek translators of the Hebrew used to translate all those different words about God that the Hebrew language used to use. Jehovah, Elohim, others. They come down to this one, God. So it's in there. And what did those words say? They said that God was glorious. He was infinite. There was no limit to him. Whereas we're very limited. That he was self-existing. God didn't have a beginning nor an end. He had life in himself. Whereas we are mortal. These bodies will wear out. They're good for us now. But they will wear out. And these lives that we're living just at this moment. Here on earth will finish. But God has life in himself. He's glorious in his infinity. His self-existence. And his unchanging character. We're very changeable, aren't we? We change often for good reasons. Because there are things that we didn't know. So we have to change plan. We have to change ideas. But God knows all. He needs the future. He sees the past. He knows it all. He doesn't need to change. He has everything under control. He is glorious. He is the Lord. He is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants to do. Um, so often, we can see the thing that we want to do. Our mind can conceive what we want to do. But our bodies aren't able to uh, manage that. Uh, we have uh, one grandson, John. And John doesn't like art. John has taken against art. He's just started school. He doesn't like that. And his mum thinks it's because John knows what a drawing of a car should look like. But when John's moved the pen on the paper, it doesn't look like a car at all. He likes stencils. They're great. You know, you draw around them and you get something that looks like a car. But that's our weakness, isn't it? We can't do all the things that we think we could do and we would want to do but God is all powerful he can he's not only all powerful he's everywhere at the same time we are so limited to being in one place at one time so we can't know what's going on anywhere else we can't do anything about it but God is everywhere at the same time he is astonishingly beyond what we can even imagine we can't imagine being in many places at the same time and he knows everything. Now Karen can still remember some of her German from, all, <coughs> from a few years ago. But some of that knowledge is gone. God's knowledge never goes. He knows everything. So he knows you and he knows me. He knows what we need. What our weaknesses are. What our strengths are. And he is holy. He's separate from us. He's the only pure, perfect being. He's righteous. He's just. He's set against sin. <clears throat> Therefore, we who are so different are deserving punishment for him, from him. That's God. So when God looks at us, what does he see? What might his 
feelings be? What might his reaction be? Disappointment that we've turned out, mankind that is as a whole, turned out to be the sort of people who make war and hatred? Is he distasteful of the things that we do in our private lives? Does he despair of us? No. God so loved the world. He loves us. He looks at us and loves us. This Greek word is the one agape. There are several Greek words for love which we translate into to love in, in our scriptures. This is the one agape, which means the love for an unworthy object. God loves us. We've no reason to expect him to do that. We forfeit any claim against him, but he loves us. And it says, for God so loved the world. Those two little words, for, tell us why what's going to happen, but so tells us the measure of what is going to happen. God so loved the world. His love is not limited and meagre as ours often is, but it is huge. It is great, despite all that separates us from him. All our faults. He loves us. For God so loved the world. Again, the Greek word is cosmos. We're familiar with that word, aren't we? The cosmos. He loves all his creation. But it focuses in on the world of flesh and blood. Mankind. Yes, God does have a love for the world that he's made, for the universe that he's made. But he has a love, a special love for the mankind that he has set in this world. Men and women of all shapes and sizes, all degrees of learning, or colour, or cultures, he has loved them. Here our context comes in uh, to help us understand this word, world. Jesus has been speaking to Nicodemus, a Jew, and Nicodemus, being a devout and faithful Jew, would have known from the scriptures the love that God had for his people, Israel. But Jesus is now saying, no, God's love is not just for Israel. You're a teacher of Israel, but I have come for the world. The whole world, all classes of mankind, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, male, female, there's no, I have come for the world. It's not that everybody is going to be saved, everybody's going to go to heaven. No, it's not that. You must be born again, and some people are not. But what God is saying here, and what Jesus is saying here, is that he loves the world, all mankind. Not just the Jews. The Jews are included, he loves them as well. But thankfully, he's extended his love to people like us, Gentiles, English, Scots, Welsh, Irish, Italian, Pole, it doesn't matter. All around the world, there are those who love and have been loved by God. For God so loved the world that he gave, it's, it's more particularly gave up his son. He gave his son up, handed him over completely. 
don't want to boast about our holidays, but we did go to the Czech Republic this summer and it was lovely. And in the main railway station in the capital in Prague, on the platform one, there's a, a small bronze statue to a man called Sir Nicholas Winton. And in the 1938 and 1939, Winton organised trains to bring Jewish children out of Prague, out of Germany as well, to safety and security here in the UK. So there's that statue of Winton, and it's, it's lovely to see. But downstairs in the entrance hall of the station, there's another um, art piece of artwork, another sculpture, which recognises the, the sacrifice of those parents from the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia as it was then, who gave up their children and sent them on their way so that they, their children, might have a chance of survival and life. I think there about, was it about six, eight hundred children, I think, made the escape. Only two were able to make contact with their parents after the war. But that's tremendous giving up, isn't it? To sacrifice, essentially, your communion with your children to give them an opportunity. But what God is doing is giving up his son so that those who hate him, those who are defiant of him, those who walk in their own ways can be brought back into fellowship with him. That is a giving up beyond our comprehension, I suspect. We might be willing to give up something for someone who loves us, for their own benefit. But God gave up his very self, God the Son, for the benefit and blessing of those who were opposed to him. God so loved the world that he gave up his only Son. People can get very uh, worked up about this translation of the, the word here. Assert that it has to be only begotten, or one and only Son, or the English Standard Version bottles out of it and just says only Son, doesn't it? Doesn't put anything else in. But none of those translations really get to the grip of this. The word, the Greek word behind this, um, appears again in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, when it says that Isaac was the same one and only, only begotten, only son of Abraham. But Isaac wasn't the only begotten son of Abraham. Abraham had other children, didn't he? Ishmael, for example. Uh, certainly he was not, Isaac was not Abraham's one and only son, and not his only son. So the translations that we have are reaching for something here, but not quite getting it. Isaac was the only special son the promised son, the one through whom Abraham's descendants would bless the whole world. And Jesus here is the only son, the only promised son, promised for centuries before, who would come and be the blessing, the channel of the blessing which God had determined for his people. And he did. Jesus, the only son of God, 
He's a man like you and me. He walked the earth. He got tired. He got thirsty. He was let down by his friends. He needed protection as a baby. He needed Mary and Joseph to look after him and protect him. We needed that as a baby, don't we? Yeah, he experienced it. He was a man. He was human, like the rest of us. But he never sinned. There was nothing about him that demanded the judgment of God against sin. He didn't need to die. But he gave up himself. God, his father, gave him up. And he willingly gave up himself. That whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever believes in him, all who believe in him, but only those who believe in him. Whoever believes in him, that's a group of people separated from those who don't. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, won't die. These bodies will wear out. We shall, according to 1 Corinthians 15, get glorious new bodies. And those who are his, who have believed in him and trusted in him, shall have eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our souls will inhabit new bodies, which will go on forever. There is a judgment to come, and tonight we'll look at that. But following that, there are two possible outcomes. Following that judgment, one can have a life of everlasting, eternal punishment for those who have remained in their sin, who have not confessed their sin, and asked that Jesus stand in their place on that day of judgment. But for those who have, whoever has believed, and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be their saviour. On that day, that day of judgment, they will go to a life of eternal bliss. This eternal life here is not just talking about the length of time, but the quality. It's not just quantity, it's quality. An amazingly glorious, wonderful life is promised to whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him. So that's the context and then the content. What about the consequence? Well, God so loved all the peoples of this world, not just the Jews, but not excluding the Jews, that he gave up his only son, his only special promised son, that everybody who believes in him won't die eternally, but live eternally. What's the consequence of that for you this morning and for me? What we can trace is the consequence for Nicodemus. So turn over, will you, to John chapter 7. And around about verse 50, here's the consequence 
of Nicodemus, for Nicodemus. He'd had this conversation with Jesus. Goes away from it. He comes back in the story at John chapter 7 and verse 50. You get the story there. The Jewish leaders have sent out their temple guards to arrest Jesus. These temple guards have come across Jesus. They've heard him speaking. They've come back. But they haven't got Jesus with him, with them. They haven't arrested him. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they are livid with rage. You know? You mean he's deceived you? They say in verse 47. They're at their most fierce. And it's at this point that Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus, doesn't he? Says, give this man justice. Listen to him. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he was doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Nicodemus, as a consequence of his conversation with Jesus, is now willing to take a stand and be brave for him. Now it might be that he hasn't fully understood what he needs to do. He still wants to hear Jesus. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? Let's hear what he has to say. It could be that Nicodemus still wants to know more. Or it could be that he actually knows now that his fellow Jews, those people who are railing against him and insulting him now, actually they need to hear Jesus as well. Just invite him in. Let him speak to you and listen to him. Nicodemus has moved forward at the time of most danger to him. Time when he is most likely to be cut off from his friends. He makes a stand. A stand which would actually bless them too. Then he disappears from the story again. And he reappears right at the end of uh, John's Gospel. John chapter 19. Let's move over to there. John chapter 19 and verses 38 and 39. The Lord Jesus has been crucified and died on the cross. And let me read this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus steps out into the light as a public follower of Jesus. It's going to cost him money, 75 pounds of uh, myrrh and aloes. That's a big 
you know, price to pay financially, but that's not the most important thing, is he? He is now cutting his ties with those who were once his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. They've had Jesus put to death and he's saying, no, this was wrong. I am a follower of this man. You notice how John is inspired to say that Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, this is daytime. This is what people will see. And Nicodemus is going out into a hostile world and saying, yes, this man was the Son of God. And I am a follower of him. He's identifying with him in a hostile world. Jesus had made clear to Nicodemus that only by trusting in him, Jesus, could Nicodemus look for that longed-for eternal life in the kingdom of God. And the evidence is that the consequence for Nicodemus was that he said yes to that. I'm going to take that promise and I'm going to use it for myself. I am going to be one of those who believes, won't perish, but have eternal life. What about us this morning? What about you? Over the next few weeks, you're going to be bombarded with loads of stuff about Christmas and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby, as a vulnerable baby in Bethlehem. Why did that happen? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. May that be the experience of us all. Now at this Christmas time and forever. Amen.